Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as normal, we'll be giving you uh, 20 minutes or so of our thoughts on three important issues in and around the hotel investment space. And we've started this week by taking a look at what's going on with the uh, the third-party managers, the operating companies that look after an increasing number of hotels uh, globally. They're, they're very well, very very well established in the US. They're quite well established in the UK and increasingly in Europe, and they're reaching out to other parts of the world as each year goes by. Uh, they've had an interesting pandemic, obviously uh, working for owners. They have uh, had to uh, become much more creative in looking at how they uh, can can yield up some, some income through the various stages of the pandemic. Uh, it's evident from speaking to some of them, as I've done in the last week or so, that, that those relationships have probably strengthened and deepened out of the necessity of having to speak to each other on a very regular basis and work out whatever they were going to do next to keep the uh, revenues flowing through the darker moments of the pandemic and that seems to have uh, done done well for where they all sit uh, now and, and today. I've seen a couple of in, uh, fairly substantial deals recently. Uh, SICAS who are uh, operators across Europe have done a new deal with an Indian hotel ownership group uh, which sees them taking over a number of city centre hotels uh, across Europe uh, under the K&K brand. Uh, it's quite a big addition for SICAS and it's uh, probably the, the largest single client they will, uh, they will have uh, in their portfolio. And the other interesting deal is that uh, RBH, which is a very well established UK operator, has uh, uh, formed a joint venture with uh, some Australian partners. Uh, and they see opportunities to expand their business from the UK uh, all the way to the other side of the world and start building up a group of uh, third-party operated hotels across the the Australian market, which they see as many years behind the UK, but moving in very much the same direction. So uh, a a bunch of very optimistic uh, characters running these, these businesses and certainly looking for ways they can expand um, and also, interestingly, not just by taking on kind of mainstream brands. There seems to be a bit of a resurgence in choosing alternative options and perhaps running hotels under their own brands as well. We've been talking about the BRICS brawn and brain split um, for a number of years now, and this is where we are separating out the, the pillar of value that is the real estate investment from the pillar of value that is the operations and the pillar of value which is the brand piece, um, and it's getting more and more momentum. Um, I, I, th- I think there is a, a good alignment of interests here um, for all concerned. So. W- what you've just been talking about there, Chris, is the alignment of interest between the uh, owner of the property and the operator of the property. Um, and that 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 works really well uh, from the perspective that, you know, if you're a brand owner, the key thing you're looking at, or one of the key things you're looking at, is keeping that flag over the building. Well, for, for an operator and particularly for the owner that is not a priority what they're looking to do is drive profitability and drive you know potentially a good deal when when the opportunity arises and so you do have this 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 alignment and we're seeing a consequent increase in franchising as a result of that as the big brand companies uh, focus on on that brand piece rather than the operations piece and the 
all the global majors are, are now looking at franchising as the the biggest segment of growth so this is the sort of backdrop to to these trends we're seeing here which have as we always say about covid um have been accelerated um as a result um rather than uh, somehow covid creating the the the, the, the this initial uh, desire for the separation that was already there very much present um and it's just been sped up and as you say chris in terms of that those contacts between owners and operators that's been reinforced but the one thing i would maybe just highlight a slight question on is from a operator perspective these third party operators they're in a tricky position because they have completely aligned with the owners but of course soon as the owner goes in and does a deal and and sells uh they could be out in their ear mm. this is in terms of the operator yeah. and you know this is a problem i mean you're looking at sycas here and um you know k and k this is a you know an owner i think who's investing to to make an exit um within five years or so um and sycas could have a serious bump in the road if they suddenly find themselves out on the ear because it's bought by somebody who wants to either install a different operator or operate it themselves so i think this is a this is a challenging issue um for the opcos um and it's uh you know i think if you're a giant like um interstate ainbridge um that's easily easier to digest i think if you're still a comer as sort of psychas is um you know and as you say this is a big bit of their business that is going to be quite a, a a tricky one to 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 negotiate but assuming they can and they've demonstrated you know that they are very fleet of foot um you know i think there's going to be lots of opportunities coming up as we see um existing owners sort of um you know hand in the keys to the banks etc um because i think it's going to get tougher and tougher for them particularly in a rising interest rate environment which i think we're going to go on to talk about a bit later in this podcast but i think we'll see more of that and there'll be more opportunity for these third party um, operators to swoop in and assist um either the banks or um new owners um as they uh uh start the the whole process of uh, um, adding value to the investment and start the process of repositioning the assets ready for eventual disposal and if you look back at history where these a lot of these third-party management companies have come from it has been during uh, times of strife um, where the banks have needed people to come in and operate because you know banks are not hotel operators um, they've just ended up in that position historically when things go a bit wobbly bob um, and they have to um, um, you know demand the keys back from the existing um, owner um, we're going to see a, a bit of that I think over the next year or two and I think consequently see quite a bit of growth in this third party space as a result of that and it's going to be one to watch how they evolve going forward um in in terms of as businesses because there's talk of some of them potentially listing um and, and you know and, and they are going to need something which offers the the shareholders in the in this new entity a little bit more reassurance in terms of longevity of the contracts so i think it's a it it, it, it it's a 
very much is a although this is decades plus old um, this is still an emergent sector still a sector which is uh, growing um, and what which is still going to sort of you know what shape it's going to be uh, we still are not really very clear on so it's quite an exciting area it's a new newish area um, and very much one to watch now the service department operators had a relatively good pandemic and those that have emerged uh, from that period looking reasonably strong are reaching out and uh, doubling down on their plans to expand and build their brands into the market um, and one of the bigger deals that's happened in this niche um, more recently has been uh, uh, the Singaporean group Capital Land who own the uh, brand group the Ascot which is the one already uh, but they've now taken over Oakwood they've in fact purchased Oakwood from uh, Maple Tree Investments who previously owned it and takes the Ascot portfolio to more than 150,000 units worldwide um, the, the Oakwood acquisition also adds a bit more uh, depth in into the US market for the group, um, but they are certainly looking to deliver on their promise that they will significantly expand their uh, Ascot group uh, globally over the coming few years. Uh, I suppose the question then arises of who might they buy next? Um, they have bought before and uh, so they're likely to buy again. But meantime in Europe we've got Adagio pushing hard to expand, uh, a private equity back to Eden and uh, from, from Ireland Stay City. Uh, all pushing out their brand, uh, looking to accelerate their signings and growth, keen to get their brand imprinted in consumers' minds and probably pose a bit more of a threat uh, to mainstream hotels along the way. Yeah, I mean, very interesting. I thought your speculation, Chris, about whether um, there's going to be a deal here with Adagio and uh, given the, the difficulties at Pierre Vacances, the 50% shareholder along with Accor of Adagio, um, the difficulty that uh, Pierre Vacances are in, um, I think that's uh, it would make a very appetising prospect for well, maybe... Um, Ascot to come in and, and swoop on mm. that and uh, really consolidate their market leader, leadership position because um, they are certainly not that in Europe where Adagio are, are clear market leaders in Europe so and and next if you look at you know I took a look at uh, Pierre Vacances and where they're focused and it, it's very much on um, uh, local tourism um, they've got an ex Accor executive, a CEO Frank Gervais, and he, you know his his thing is to become the European leader in reinvented local tourism. And I'm not sure how well Adagio sits within that theme, given that Adagio is significantly um, business traveller orientated, or not overwhelmingly, but um, compared to sort of centre parks, which is entirely leisure orientated, um, you know, it, it doesn't really fit in with that mission statement that uh, that the the new look PNV has drawn up. I mean, they've just been recapitalised. Um, they're looking. Um, to get 200 million euros back into their balance sheet to sort of rescue them from the the, the, the carnage that was COVID. Um, and I think it makes even more sense to, to, to shed Adagio to enable them to put their cash where they're wanting to put their cash, which is in centre parks uh, and the other associated uh, uh, local tourism ventures. Um, 
we we will see where that goes i mean it, it, it you know there's nothing that we've heard i don't think you've mm-hmm. heard chris that uh, um which indicates that a deal is, no, is no, imminent, that was entirely speculative it, it, on my part that uh, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it just seems a very logical uh thing to to, to happen we will see uh, um you know it, it, it might be obvious that perhaps Accor comes in and takes because this is a very fast-growing um, area of of the whole um, lodging market, um, and maybe Accor comes in and takes up that fifty percent stake. That that would be the the normal pattern. It's you know French company sells to another mm. French company, but I'm just not sure in the current environment um, how Accor shareholders would receive news of uh, a major deal like this i suspect that uh, in the short term that that is off the agenda for accor um and whether p and v can hang on um until accor's in a better position remains to be seen um it would be a very tempting move to to get rid of the whole show um to enable a more streamlined tourism focused offering at pmv um and uh, and, and accor might well lose you know its shout at being in this very fast growing um apart hotel market um one to watch now you've uh, been away on your travels again andrew and this time attending the southeast asia hotel investors summit so um have you been taking the temperature of what's going on over there let's hear yeah so what what always is kind of fun diving into markets which i'm not particularly familiar with um certainly trying to be you know completely up to speed with uh you know what's going on in asia from the uk is is it's not very sensible so it's, it's kind of fun to turn up and listen to a, a group of the most senior figures talking about what is going on there and their over the, the my over overwhelming takeaway was it's very similar to europe they are maybe in terms of the recovery period uh Oh, maybe six months behind. Um, certainly six months behind the UK. Probably more, actually. Um, maybe a bit less uh, bits of continental Europe, notably Germany, which has been a real laggard in terms of the recovery, but is now there. Um, Asia, Southeast Asia. We should focus really on Southeast Asia here because I think um, it's always dangerous to try and draw. Um, you know, make generalities across such huge um, areas of geography as Asia. Um, so you've really got the subcontinent, you've got the People's Republic of China, and you've got Southeast Asia. I would suggest as the three, the three big groupings. And in Southeast Asia, um, you know, they're probably less than three months into any sort of. Uh, meaningful recovery and they're still very dependent on airlift coming back uh, uh, Jesper Palmquist from SDR was talking about the, the uh, RevPAR numbers um, and he was pointing out that we're maybe at 60-70% back in terms of airlift to uh, Southeast Asia and until that comes fully back it's going to be a struggle for markets like Thailand and Vietnam which are much more dependent on overseas uh, tourism particularly at the luxury end um, that they need to they need to get that airlift back you've also got the the ongoing situation in china um where goodness knows when actually they're going to be allowed out of the country to start traveling 
properly again. Um, the, the general consensus was, well, it's probably six months away, um, but, but certainly towards the, the, the tail end of this year, um, more pessimistic um, views were beyond 12 months but we, we, we will see on that one but certainly it's a very similar scenario to where we were in Europe perhaps um, not long after the new year and just coming out of the whole uh, um, sort of whatever number wave that was um, of Covid um, and whatever variant I've even forgotten what variant was Omicron <laughs> oh, wasn't right, it yes. that was the variant we were yeah. we were worry potting about um, back in January um, but uh, so they seem to be just at that point. I mean, they still have sort of legacy bits, so you still have to wear masks on public transport and you know um, that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, gradually this 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 nonsense is is disappearing, and we're getting back to a sense of normality. The one thing I would say is that the airport process there is fantastic um, relative to what <laughs> the situation is in Europe. So whereas it's been a government constraint um, in Asia, in Southeast Asia. Asia, certainly um, and they've been slower to ease up on the restrictions um, they don't seem to be having the the gruesomeness at the airports that we we are having both within the airlines and at the airports um, and I hope that continues to be the case as things uh, as things ramp up there um, on the deal front uh, the market is you know the same sort of themes that you hear in Europe are being said in um, Southeast Asia as well so there is this um, everybody's having to recalibrate in terms of their um, you know if, if you're an acquirer you're looking at the macro background and saying right we've got rising interest rates the price of my debts shooting up I'm gonna have to review what I'm prepared to pay and you've got sellers who are saying well actually I want what I was gonna get in 2019 if not a bit more um, and you know there are problems with that so that the, the travel lodge portfolio in Australia for example was sold at a premium to 2019 pricing so you know a lot of sellers are saying well I want some of that please um, whereas the buyers are saying well actually we can't afford that given what the outlook is in terms of interest rates um, and our, the price of our debt so you know you're going to have to take a bit of a, a haircut um, um, so there was the the senior exec from JLL spoke at the conference and he talked about this disconnect between buyers and sellers and same theme we've got over here he's, he's sort of saying well look we've got this overabundance of capital um, which is wanting to deploy and this is going to help support um, pricing um, so but something ultimately is going to give um, and listening to a panel of of the funds they were saying six to twelve months um, before we start seeing some significant deal flow and some changes in mood amongst uh, sellers um, they they thought the panel thought they was going to be principally led by the banks um, and but also sellers who are just going to get fed up they were you know seeing their equity eaten away um, by you know refinancing debt refinancings and effectively you know the, these um, existing owners were would end up just working for the benefit of the bank um, and they thought you know what's the point in that we might as well get out um, and sell and this is going to help um, deal flow so we will see a very similar 
um, outlook to, to that what we have um, in, in Europe I think um, uh, the difference in Asia perhaps is that there's deeper um, uh, pools of capital perhaps a narrower field of, of, of those pools so see how that what impact that has on uh, market dynamics and now we go to our five star no star awards for the week and our five stars goes this week to staycations which are uh, uh, continuing to be a thing uh, we've actually got some stats to prove that from uh, oyo the uh, the indian group who actually have quite a substantial home rental business across europe and have pulled some metrics together to give us some thoughts on how uh, demand is is holding up and and strong um, and so it's not just um, government tr travel restrictions uh, or airlines and airports mucking things up and making it a dreadfully painful process to fly anywhere. Um, but yeah, staycations are still a thing. And it, it seems that, uh, you know, while they were, we were all driven to them during the pandemic, they're going to remain longer in uh, the consumer's mind than perhaps some of us might have thought or hoped. Yes, um, staycations are still going to be there. I, I, I just, the problem I think, um, it's, it's kind of the, what we talked about at the time when we, uh, we, you know, beat <laughs> ourselves up here, Chris. I think we were quite early in saying, look, we've got a far bigger from northern europe there's a far bigger outbound market than inbound market if you shut down travel you've got this bumper boom going to be happening in domestic um, travel if you can have domestic travel which we could um, in the summer of 21 um, and indeed in the, in the late summer of uh, 2020 we had a bit mm. of a bump as well in, in in domestic travel but markedly so in in, in 2021 but at the time we said what we would would end up seeing is a huge jump in price prices and the value perception for customers would look very bad and I think uh, um, that is the case and what we are seeing right now is an, uh, you know an absolute appetite to get back traveling overseas by northern Europeans but just a huge challenge in terms <laughs> of actually being able yeah. to get on a plane <laughs> yes um, and that, that's putting people off it's certainly put me off um, it's put us you know our clan off we're, we're we normally head off to the Alps um, in the summer do a bit of walking and what have you uh, we, we're not doing this uh, we had, didn't haven't done it since 2019 um, we'll only you know begin thinking about that for, for 2023 um, but um, um, but for others you know the value proposition in the U, you know in the UK or whatever their domestic market is in northern Europe is just not very appetizing um, so I think that and will they long long term be able to hang on to that I'm, I'm I'm afraid I have my doubts I think what should have happened um, in an ideal world is that all the opportunity to reprice um, ought to have led ought to have led to reinvestment and a raising of a quality and in particular I think there's a gap at that very top end um, for for staycation product if you if you do that super luxury offer um, and price it appropriately but to, most importantly deliver appropriate levels of um, quality experience you will get that um, uh, unfortunately I think what we've seen is just a lot of you know fairly average stuff being ramped up in pricing mm. whether it's a travel lodge or a hilton on the on the coast just you know i think the bournemouth hilton getting 600 pound room rates now i'm not 
doing down the the Hilton at Bournemouth I'm sure it's a lovely hotel but the best will in the world I struggle to see how anybody would want to pay 600 pounds a night down there and equally some of the two 300 pounds I'm hearing about for travel lodges um, you know again I'm, I'm I'm struggling with that it just doesn't represent fabulous value and I think you know as this plays out what we will see is a drift back to the sort of normal patterns of uh, of overseas uh, tourism so I don't think this is yeah, this year yeah and to an extent even next year I think there'll still be a bit of stickiness um depending on whether the airlines have finally got their acts together or not um, but I think uh, um, in the medium term the 24 the 25 and the 26 uh, no I, I you know I, I fear for the staycation market at the top end perhaps if you've got the right offer um, absolutely because people have clocked on to just how difficult it is to um, to travel overseas so unless you you know as long as you don't try and pitch to the private <laughs> jet market <laughs> who, who can organize their travel very very well um if the, the next notch down from that if you've got a product that's that's pitched in there i think there is and will be ongoing demand for that i think for the mid-tier stuff and lower um harder uh, and we're giving no stars this week to some uh, well some rather bleaker news as the uh, the cooler economic winds blow through and affect asset prices in real estate yeah my, my my inbox is becoming more and more game of thrones um with the house of stark i don't know with you with you're a fan of game of thrones but their their motto was winter is coming and um you know, i think what's the headline the coming real estate investment winter was one i had uh, a few minutes before this podcast um and and, and it it's looking grim um so in terms of analysts uh, one of our go-to uh uh, groups are Green Street, and they are—they um, just issued a release um, in the last week or so, bidding adieu to the ask, um, and they are saying just how gruesome. Now they don't—they're not hotel specialists, but they—they uh, they break it out in industrial, residential, office, and retail, and they're just saying it's—it's it, it's looking very, very difficult. So just as a, a few data points. Um, um, average office quality remains the least attractive investment off option even after reducing values 20 percent wow that's um that's grim um and actually looking at their graphs i think it's retail which is heading towards golly it's you know it, they index back to 2007 and um, um, retail is now heading to 60% of 2007 values. N none of the other three, the office, residential and industrial, are coming off anything like retail, but uh, office is heading towards back to where it was in 2007. And I think certainly, as they say, the secondary office market is probably already there or lower. Um, but uh, it, it is all of the graphs are heading um, distinctly south. Um, so um, indeed, um, House of Stark. Note, we'll say goodbye for now. <laughs>